Hello, and welcome to Eagle Alpha's Profiting from Data podcast. Today's episode is a provocative discussion on the challenges within ESG, including greenwashing, social washing, and measuring true changes without data and transparency. Your host for today is Neil Hurley, CEO of Eagle Alpha, and he is joined by three ESG superstars to discuss challenges and solutions to ESG investment strategies. Roberto Rigobon is a professor at MIT Sloan School of Management and the founder of the Aggregate Confusion Project, an initiative set out to reduce the level of noise in measuring ESG ratings. Gibran Regis Charles is the co-founder of Urban Edge Capital, an investment firm paving the way by promoting diversity, long-term financial sustainability, and challenging ESG issues like greenwashing. John Tian is a portfolio manager at RWC Partners, It's his belief that investors are in a unique position to drive responsible investing and sustainability among firms. Please enjoy this dialogue between Roberto, Gibran, John, and your host, Neil Hurley. Excellent. Good morning. Good afternoon. Thank you very much to our guests today. We'll be discussing the wonderful world of ESG and looking at some of the challenges and some of the fallacies that we see in ESG frameworks. And as introduced, we've got some really experienced and excellent guests. So I'd like them to tell us a little bit about what they're working on at the moment and what's getting them excited in 2021. Roberto, what's keeping you engaged at MIT? I know the huge amount of work that you do there. I'm working on two things. One is the aggregate confusion project that is trying to measure better ESG measures. And the second one, I'm working really hard on my golf swings. And so actually, I hit an eight over part yesterday. So I'm extremely happy. Excellent. So you're vaccinated and you're out playing golf. Oh, my God. In fact, I am trying to get a third type of vaccine. There's nothing like being over-vaccinated. Actually, I think I'm traveling to Russia to get the Chinese one. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Very good. Keep on. Um, what's exciting at Urban Edge? What's happened so far in 21 for you? Well, we've been sort of busily studying more diverse inclusion and data. So we've been really getting our head down and trying to tighten the data, trying to create interesting data sets that allow us to be able to score and get the right data we need to strengthen our portfolio and again challenge industry about dni really excellent well i'm looking forward to discussing that over the next half an hour with the group john rwc what's been happening year to date what's getting you excited well as a value manager i'm just enjoying a period of value outperforming growth we've had 10 years of underperformance and really since this year and, and really since november last year's turn so just enjoying that for a while. That's been great. But really, at the moment, we're going into AGM season. So it's incredibly busy engaging with companies and voting AGM. So that's really what's taking up my time at the moment. I agree. We've been discussing the value versus growth dynamic and the role that data plays at some of our conferences. I think it's very, very interesting and hopefully something we can discuss in the future. So you know, for today, we really wanted to dig into some of the challenges around ESG. It's very, very well discussed and very, very broad topic. But there are some obvious topics or areas that we believe we need to maybe look at a little bit differently and try and think of a different way forward. What keeps coming up in conversation is the area of greenwashing. So we could just define it firstly and just get the group's perspectives. So Roberto, greenwashing, how do you view this dynamic and how do you define it? So I'm going to use a definition of a friend that I find tremendously useful. He classifies the greenwashing in two types. One is the malicious, bad intentions type of greenwashing, when 
a company is trying to hide the reality or trying to manipulate the data. But then the other one, which is 95% of what happened, is the peer pressure greenwashing, is that the companies feel that they need to do something because somebody's pressuring them to do. And I think the first one is clearly bad because it's something that has bad intentions. But the second one creates a false sense of accomplishment. So that's the worst type of greenwashing is that you do something, you know, that you said, well, uh, we're going to allow people in the hotels to decide if they want to be clean every day or every two days or every three days with good purpose. That truly, we don't understand the unintended consequences of that policy. We don't understand exactly what are the intentions that we're doing. We feel that we have to do something because we're pressured to do something. And then because we did something, we feel that we did our homework so we can go home and sleep correctly. So that peer pressuring is the one that worries me tremendously. I would agree. And Kipron, what's been your own perspective on the greenwashing dynamic? Are there things that are standing out to you in your research at Urban Edge? I think we've mainly been looking at some of the, not so much the negligence, but some of the malicious intentions as well, and some of the greed aspects of some of the managers that are challenging me if, uh, if this is a bit outrageous. But the idea of some of the new roles that are created and the people in those roles may not be as experienced, but the idea of having a brand new ESG department or a brand new ESG director is attractive because it's lucrative and it brings in money. We're looking at an industry now that globally is 75 trillion, you know, US dollars of assets with 2,200 asset managers around the world managing huge amounts of money. So the idea of ESG managers and ESG being a way to make revenue is good, but under forced pretenses, which is disturbing as it does sideline into social washing, which I'll discuss later on. But, you know, for me, what we're doing at Urban Edge is just sharing information and data about that and making investors be aware of how to challenge things like greenwashing and what to do about it. There's even a people element to greenwashing where somebody gets appointed as an environmental officer, but really there's been no underlying change in how the company is thinking. As I said, I was making a video about Colin and Janice, and Janice is one of the best administrators in a business 25 years but Colin's a greedy manager and decides to promote Janice from admin into ESG and now she has to write policy about things like you know environment social governance and she's not equipped but you know marketing wise amazing marketing wise is a good spin and again the need for, for their company to be constantly raising money is a good way of them to lure investors who are good worlds really out of hard and cash so yeah, it's not good. And I think more education about how this works is needed, really. And especially when it affects the social side of it, which we'll go into, because again, that's hitting charities and the social human capital element of it as well. Yeah. John, what's been your experience and perspective on the greenwashing side as a fund manager? Well, as Roberto said, there's peer pressure. In our world, it's a commercial pressure. You have to have an ESG framework. So then the challenge is to understand, is that a genuine and a real engagement that you have going on? Or is it just greenwashing? Is it window dressing, if you like? So how do end investors really figure out if that ESG framework that you profess to have is genuine, that you really are implementing it in that genuine manner? I guess one concrete example of greenwashing in the portfolio context would be divestment. And I can go into quite a bit of detail on this, but if you think about the divestment trend has been huge across endowments in particular, student pressure. We saw recently 
um, earlier this year in Trinity College in Cambridge, where the students dug up the lawn. So you, you see this pressure that people are forced to divest from fossil fuel assets, and particularly coal assets. And to a degree, that is greenwashing, because ultimately you have to ask yourself, what impact does it have? Does it reduce emissions? And what we see is it doesn't reduce emissions. And Bill Gates admitted that in his book, that it doesn't reduce emissions. So why are people doing it? Well, for a portfolio, it's a much easier, more commercial approach to take to remove fossil fuels from your portfolio or to at least reduce the coal element. That makes your message much easier to sell or to market. It's really interesting. I remember I saw an article in The Economist uh, a number of months ago that talked about the amount of high emission assets that were in private ownership. So what you're effectively saying is we move everything off the public equity balance sheet and we move it into private markets. So what does the group think? Do we have to change the cost of lending? Do we have to change frameworks? Do we have to change measurement? How are we going to solve for the fact that polluting assets end up in private ownership and away from public companies. So, Roberta, what's your thoughts on that? Well, the first one, building on what John says, is that the first thing is to recognize that these halfway measures do not work. So, divesting, I would like my university not necessarily to divest, is to do the investment that the private sector would have not done that is environmentally correct. So, in other words, a farm of solar panels in Massachusetts, which will be maybe on the private sector a bad idea commercially, I do it because I think it's right. You have to become the marginal contributor. You have to be more engaged if you want to change. So in other words, if the divesting conversation changes the culture of the organization and the endowment, then so be it. But it has to be way beyond divesting. Now, the problem is that the students will like to have something done, which is exactly what John is saying, is that they would like to see something happening today. And the risk of that strategy is that you actually do something and then you feel, well, I did it, so I don't have to do anything else. So that false sense of accomplishment is what I feel is incredibly hard. So we need to recognize that halfway measures do not work. And then we really have to change our marginal impact. So especially on endowment. Yeah, agree. John, what's your thoughts there? Yeah, just to come back, that false sense of accomplishment, or you could call it a displacement activity. Yeah. All those efforts to divest should be spent things that actually really make a difference. Yeah. And if you think about, I looked into divestment and I said, okay, well, you know, I would say it as a value manager, wouldn't I, that we should keep the assets. But what I did was I looked at where the divestment has happened. And one a clear example is in Australia, where the large mining companies had to divest the coal mines that they had under pressure from investors. Who was the buyer of these? Well, firstly, the Chinese subsidiary, Yanko, was coming in and buying them up because there's a huge amount of demand for coal in China. The next set was private equity. And there was a division of private equity, the big private equity firm. But there's also smaller firms that were paying peppercorn amounts for these assets. And what eventually you know, it comes out is that if coal prices go up, those buyers win, right? It's heads they win. Coal prices go down, tails the taxpayer loses because the taxpayer is actually left with the rehabilitation costs of those mines because it didn't work out for the private equity firm. So in fact, what you've done with divestment is you've pushed the assets into less ethical hands and you've actually pushed some of the costs onto the taxpayer. So the outcome is divestment has actually been a headwind or has been negative for the environment. 
Yeah. I like the idea of allocating capital with conditions attached. And Roberto, you and I have discussed this before. So rather than giving an extra dollar to Google, you give an extra dollar to Exxon, but it's got conditions attached to it. And that we say, you will get more money provided through transparency, through data, through measurement, you are affecting change with the underlying assets and putting your R&D and your patents to work. That to me sounds a much better approach than divesting the problem away and all the challenges John you know, has yeah. outlined. Yeah, in fact, capital needs to stop being passive. I mean, this is what you mm. describe is capital needs to be intention, intentional, has to be active and therefore use it. So in fact, this is something that maybe should be for another podcast, but we have all these passive investments. I feel that passive investment is a little bit too passive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, agreed. Yeah. And, and we, I agree. I agree. It's a separate conversation. I've always thought, is indexation the enemy of ESG? Yeah. Are we just in an environment where certain industries have performed historically and they've got higher weightings and we're just allocating more capital yeah. to them in an index basis? I think that's really interesting. But just listening to John's earlier point on value, I think there's a fantastic intersection between value, activism, ESG, and data that can come together and really affect change. What are people's thoughts on that approach? Well, I think if I go back when ESG was really taking off and all of the flows were going into growth funds, basically, they were marketed as ESG. I was utterly pessimistic about the future for value. And I was going, well, what role do we have? And peers who were growth fund managers, I jealously looked at their position. But then I flipped it. I went, actually, I can be the impact fund. I can make a change. If you go down the exclusion route, or if you look for that ESG perfect portfolio to begin with, well, what difference do you make? Where, Mm. to your point, Neil, we can have strings attached to the capital we give to companies that need to improve. And so I would go back to, you know, Orsted gets fantastic publicity. It's seen as the, the most sustainable energy company in the world. Well, who talks about Dong, the predecessor of Orsted, that needed the capital to push it and help it on its way to be more sustainable? So I'd rather invest in Dong than in Orsted, if you like, because one, Orsted is extremely expensive, but Dong is where you can make the impact. It's predecessor. That's where you can really have an impact in helping the environment. And as I said, to your point, Neil, is by putting strings attached, by saying to management, yes, I will buy your shares, but I want to see progress on these fronts. I want to see you truly decarbonize. Yeah, I completely agree, John. I want to make sure we leave time to discuss social washing, but are there any final thoughts on the topic of greenwashing from Roberto and Gibran? No, I just I just agree with what John was saying about proving value by actually making these companies prove that they actually are impacting. Again, we're saying when it rubber reaches the road, and that's one way of actually proving well, sort of flushing out greenwashers really is when you challenge them and say, well, okay, great, well, let me see what you're doing. Let me see uh, what steps you're taking to actually benefit either the environment, social governance, path or policies that you're taking. You know, how does the rubber meet the road with you? Where does it finally end and how can we show that? I think that's a brilliant way of flushing out the greenwashers. Yeah, agreed. I should say nothing because I can only imagine how much passion is Gibran withholding <laughs> because he wants to talk about social yes. now. Well, I heard that term first from Gibran. So, Gibran, you might actually be able to trademark that. Well, yeah, I'm looking into it. But I mean, no, it's out there. It's been there for a while. And this is what worries me. It's kind of like, you know, only now are we seeing it. You know, are we only now seeing 
sort of damage it's doing and the feigned ignorance that some of these companies are pretending to sort of know. Oh, really? That bugs me a little bit. But now it's out, I think we need to discuss it because it affects all parts of what we do, right? It affects the value chain. It affects, you know, how we study and measure these things. It affects every facet because what we're looking at is human capital. And for a long time, human capital wasn't really valued. It was just kind of bodies and work, pressing buttons or pushing pens, whatever. But now human capital is you know, a real powerhouse because it's about how we create productivity, how we create top percent revenues and more, and how we create all these other great things that make companies great. So what we can't have is social washing and those who are behind it to come and sort of pollute and damage what is fundamental to our existence, really. Yeah. Definition-wise, social washing is basically social responsibility initiatives, which are just not there, right? So it's SRI under great marketing, great websites, and again, the false placement of people who are just there to take a badge and have a desk plate, but really don't actually impact anything, really. And it's a circular motion of data, just keeps circling the information around and around, and it never lands anywhere, right? And I think at some point, in order for things to be measured and progressed, we have to land at something. We have to see what impact people are doing, especially what we're doing with diversity and inclusion. We're constantly striving to source and create and procure better data so we can prove everything that we are doing as a company. So we can go, look, we can prove every step of the way that Urban Edge Capital is doing all these steps and we have an end result which lands eventually at the door of our charity. So, yeah, lots there, Neil, lots there. Yeah, I agree. Looking forward to the discussion on this point. Roberta, what's your research at MIT showing you around social washing and some of the underlying challenges? So I would like to talk about the challenges because I think on the measurement side, this is just incredibly complicated. When you think about how we measure, for example, sexual harassment, we have what I call the four aspects that make a bad measurement. So the four characteristics that will make a bad measurement. So first is when you concentrate only on extreme events. So sexual harassment, we don't look at the microaggressions. We don't measure how people are being affected at every day of their life, how, for example, they are not promoted, that they are not supporting education, etc. So we only measure when the woman decides to file a complaint in a labor court or she quits out of the job. So that turnover. We measure extreme events. We don't measure, for example, regularly. And so in, in the United States, all the measures, all the official measures are yearly. Yearly. Like how on earth are you going to fix the problem you measure yearly? And in fact, by the way, it's yearly with a six or seven month delay. So in fact, today, we don't even know domestic violence measures of the United States of last year. I mean, we're in April. Are you kidding me? So how on earth are you going to solve the issue? So we measure very irregularly. Again, these are complicated surveys. I understand why it's so difficult. It's because you have to go to the households and detect evidence that a domestic abuse took place or an office that you have to look at a, that sexual harassment took place. Then third, we mostly know about it when we see it in the news. So if you go to the history of the United States, about eight years ago, most of the sexual harassment was in the army. About six years ago, it was mostly on colleges. Then it moved to Hollywood. And in the last year and a half, you have not seen a single case. We don't see it in the news. So there are two options. One, we're not paying attention, or we have solved the problem of sexual harassment in the United States. So if you base your whole actions 
on what happens in the news media, we're doomed. And then lastly, the worst part here is that we create these statistics that give this, again, greenwashing, implicitly, or social washing. You said, well, you know, if I have 40% of women in my organization, I'm done. But then you treat them really badly. You put them in positions in jobs that are really not meaningful. And yes, you hit the target of 40%, but truly you are not improving their conditions. So to me, how to measure all these little parts is absolutely crucial, is that we need to understand the microaggressions that happen every day and how do we measure. That's what the aggregate confusion is trying to do. So I spend every day of my life thinking about how we can do this. And this is one of the examples. You can have many of these about forms of discrimination on different groups. So it's just we need to find the technology and we have to get new data. We have to change completely the approach. Yeah, We cannot do surveys. I mean, Neil, you know this. Yeah but maybe the audience doesn't. Surveys are very good, but there's a limitation about asking people, have you discriminated someone lately? I mean, who answers yes? Yeah, yeah. No, the <laughs> self-certification and disclosures creates a bias, but it's also, to what you say, it's the timeliness of the release. And sometimes people in a data environment will talk about fast ESG data, which is very news flow driven, and then slow ESG data, which comes through company disclosures and can be annual in nature. John, I'd be interested to get your take. Is it something that you spent much time thinking about from an ESG perspective and from management perspective? We have, but admittedly, it's the weaker factor of the ESG. You know, we're strong on governance, strong on the environment, but we struggle on the social aspect. And if I go back a few years, we have the services of one of the ESG rating agencies, but we weren't happy with the way they were calculated because it was more about disclosure than about actually assessing the company. So I tried to create you know, the ESG score on myself. And when I was looking at the S part of it and I was going through the factors, I was going, well, what should I include? And I was thinking, OK, let's think about are the company giving money to charity? Well, how should we consider that? What should we measure? Should it be the total amount that they have versus revenue or versus profit? If they have a foundation, should they get extra marks for that? So that was difficult to think through and to think how we should really measure it and what weight we should give it, because what risk does that carry through to the company from a purely investment point of view? And then when you go on, you think about diversity. Well, you're going at the board level. You know, we've got the 30% club. That's a, a measure that we would reflect upon. But then you wonder, is that just taking people from executive level up to the board level? So you're robbing lower executive levels just to populate where ESG people are scoring on. And therefore, what impact is that having? Is that the right way to look at it? And then you think about supply chains. And again, trying to get your head around how you should measure it, think about it, assess the risk. It's such a complex area and it's so broad that, that it's a huge challenge. Yeah, I completely agree. I was looking at a data technique the other day where you take the first names and last names of all the employees in the company, you reference that data and correlate it with, say, the U.S. census, and that will give you insights into the person's gender, their background, and you know ethnicity and religion, race, so forth. What are people's perspectives on doing that exercise, Roberto Gibran? What's been your experience? I think Roberto shares my viewpoints on the fact that, you know, with how automation of this system is implemented, the code is biased, right? So I'm not completely convinced that you're going to get a fair result measurement of doing a process. As you know, it's been well documented 
both here on Netflix about the bias that's happening with, over in America, especially not only in things like recruitment, but also in the penal system as well. You know, rehabilitation and prisoners coming out are not getting a fair chance. Are they a risk of flight? But there's no consideration of a human aspect in terms of their rehabilitation. It's just going up against what they've been convicted of and, you know, their credit score, where they live and their last job. So all the hard facts which haven't been considered to be fair, are being put forward as valid evidence. Roberto, what do you think about that? No, so I agree. So let me put it this way. I mean, there's a lot of research. I want to say something. So there's a lot of research that academia is conducting on how to make sure that you have algorithms that are fair and with a very broad definition of justice. And this is a very long topic because it's not clear what actually justice means for everybody. I mean, it means different things. So But there's a lot of research that people are trying to address this issue. But let me just summarize where the issue comes, is that the data that we are imputing to all these machine learning algorithms has the biases in the data. I mean, we overpunish Latinos and African-Americans in the United States in the penal system. So that is in the data. Now, when an individual is making a discriminatory decision, when I am actually discriminating, at least I feel bad about it. So I might refrain myself from doing it. The computer actually don't care. The computer says the best predictor that you are in jail is that you are either Latino or African-American. That's it. And so, so the computer will be incredibly heartless. And so they become even more discriminatory than the humans because of that, that aspect. They push the factors that explain the predictability. They push it mm. up to infinity with merciless. So when people apply these techniques without understanding the biases in the data, the techniques are going to amplify those biases. They are not going to reduce it. So therefore, you have to be very careful with that. So judicial system, for example, is one where I will be very concerned. I mean, because I know it starts with a lot of discrimination. So so how do you translate that into a sentencing using machine learning? I will be tremendously scared. It's, It's really interesting. I mean... Bringing it down to a company level. So if you're running a, a small business or SME sector, you're representative of a lot of the workforce and your business has a specialty. So let's say you're a technology business or an engineering business and you wish to make your business more diverse and inclusive. And we were talking prior about the talent pool available to you when you go to make a hire. So appreciate Gibran's point. You can push dynamics, John's point on executives, on board levels. But when you're bringing in new people to the company, what do you do when you have biases in your talent pool? How do we improve that or address that? Well, Um, again, I think this is something that I've been stressing is in education from the higher ups and from the managers. And it's no good blaming or embarrassing CEOs about this because it's legacy system they've inherited how this company's been running not so much with the smaller SMEs, smaller companies i think they can learn fast and adapt that but again you know we have to be careful of the peer pressure that's around that as well and actually looking at what this benefits and that's why when we're speaking about diversity inclusion i've been very careful to kind of take it out of the hr world where it's been always associated and put it into an asset class where ceos and stakeholders can see that actually it's a revenue making process Diversity inclusion is no longer just about getting a nice band of people together. It's also very powerful as the way of making companies even more powerful. Okay. And I think 
going forward and what I'm a bit upset about is the fact that not enough companies are understanding of that right now. Well, some of the problems I see at the minute around this data is the fact that, again, as Roberta said, a lot of this data is yearly. Okay, so companies are not able to see how progress is made or the industry how progress is made because it only comes up once a year. Plus ESG data and social data, like most data, is not mandatory, you know, like financial data is. Disclosures is orders of bite for companies as well. Large companies are better at transparency than smaller companies. Again, so you're going to get big companies like Netflix and Coca-Cola giving out massive diversity statements, which is good, which encourages, but not so much for the smaller companies. So I think it's for managers to understand and appreciate it but also especially with gender get men involved i think if we start making things like more gender and women hires a specialist thing then it's judged as a specialist project and it won't be treated with the same respect you know so i think if you have men involved from senior levels saying look we need time on women as a message i think you see a faster turnaround so it definitely is a top-down thing but i think it's an educational process regularly rather than annually Yeah. The research is very, very clear on the performance of companies that are diverse and inclusive. Roberto, have you looked at this closely? So not on the performance, but I agree that with the benefit. In fact, actually, I always ask the question, what is the benefit of discrimination? What do you have to gain by treating another person that is valuable badly? It really, when you think about it (laughs) from the reverse point of view, is that where are the profits of the discrimination? It's just hard for me to, so I have not paid too much attention to that. I mean, what happened, Roberto, I mean, you know, historically, and as I mentioned before in another webcast, I think, especially in the UK, it's historically in the UK, especially from sort of 1949 to 1950s, it was the fact that with the wind rush and the Irish population coming into the UK, it was just a matter of financial exclusion. You know, these two communities weren't included into the financial system. So therefore, they weren't catered for. I know my granddad, who was seconded to the RAF, when he you know, arrived back in the UK, he was paid in a brown envelope working for Vitties and factories. And he wasn't allowed to have a bank account. So therefore, you know, you've got things like conspicuous consumption, which is the idea of why different minorities wear the clothes that they wear. And so there's a history of it. So I think looking at the history of communities will show why we still have these issues today, as in finance never really was the most elitist environment. So they never really catered for anybody. They didn't need to. Why would they? So I think only now in the last sort of 20 years or 10, 15 years, we've seen that, you know, this is a precedent we should be paying attention to. But on the performance side, just to finish up that last quote there, Neil, you know, just with two diverse board members, you're seeing companies having a 12% faster earnings growth, which is incredible. Just two. Two diverse board members equals 12% faster earnings growth. And I think that should be put on big billboards all over the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I will will offer another evidence on the creation of ideas. So, and in fact, the place where most of the ideas are created in academia, they tend to be amazingly diverse, at least on ethnicities and nationalities. So I do think that if you look at companies and you look at even closer, not necessarily on earnings, but also on patents, I guess that you will see that diversity is useful for that. Diversity is useful for, to make your ideas, you have to sell them to people that think very differently and that your viewpoint has to be actually challenged by other people that have different viewpoints. That you have to make the ideas more robust and better. See, to me, it's like super simple. 
if I talk to myself, I have always great ideas. I have, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. When, you. yeah, when I practice my pitch ideas on the mirror, I always buy them. I mean, I have <laughs> never ever not received money from a PC. <laughs> yeah. Like I say, like, wow, this sounds so good. <laughs> like, how they cannot give me money, those bastards. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Great point. So, if we'd like to talk about looking forward, we've posed some of the challenges under greenwashing under social washing people's experience some of the shortcomings what their research has shown to date so looking forward what do we need to do better you know so one of my bugbears is how we measure success through share price performance what are people's thoughts about esg being a share price performance dynamic john i think i absolutely agree with you Neil, given the weird value and growth has been so strong but what we have seen is that so much money has flown into esg strategies that are highly correlated with growth that it has had this self-reinforcing effect over the last 12 months in particular it's meant that esg strategies now invested in growth stocks are quite vulnerable right and that's vulnerable to future returns being disappointing for the investors and of course that can then undermine esg itself so if people go through a period of very weak returns, then they will say, well, ESG doesn't actually work. So what we need is a more maturing of ESG in general and thinking more broadly, not having focused on share prices, as you say, or the successful growth stocks over the last 10 years. So we need to really look across stocks, across sectors through the lens of ESG and see how we can improve and then measure improvement. And I think that's the key. If we look back, I think in 20 years' time, we'll be aghast at how immature the market is at the moment, particularly on data. And that's where the developments, in my view, will come in the next couple of decades. Yeah, that makes sense. Roberta, what's your thoughts on measuring success? I agree with John. There's a theorem in data that says that you are what you measure. So if you only measure stock returns, we should not be surprised that in the end, we are not paying attention to social issues and discriminatory issues, etc., because those returns are harder to measure and the impact is harder to measure. What Gibran is discussing is new research that might come out, but we have spent 70 years, 80 years with one way of thinking, and therefore I'm not surprised that our management is devoted to that. We don't even know our supply chains. If I ask about Apple, what is the probability that they use child labor in their supply chain, six degrees of separation back, I'm pretty sure they don't even know what the company is. So we don't pay too much attention. We just want products to be cheap and sell at a very high price. And that works very well for most things, but is actually leading to very bad outcomes on the labor market in the impact of the security of our products. So I actually think that we have to broaden this definition. And actually, as, as John said, I think the key here is data. And we need to deploy the data by asking the companies not only to disclose. So this is where the regulation should be. The regulation should be on disclosure. Just have massive amount of disclosure needs. But then we want these leaders, we want the Apples and Netflix of the world to make sure that they look into the supply chain, that they force a disclosure into all the private firms that are supplying them, because that's the only way we will get it is that Apple says, you don't sell to me unless you disclose. And you don't sell to me unless the supplier to you discloses. And you use the network as the incentives. And that's how we will produce alternative data sources yeah. that will allow us to measure all these things much, much better. By the way, faster, 
not extreme events. We don't need to wait for the tragedy to measure it. We can just measure the marginal changes. And in fact, this more or less what John would love to do because then every one of those tiny data points will be value. <laughs> that, that's not growth. And then you can actually have intentionality on the capital that we have discussed. Yeah. So, yeah. so I will use the power of the multinationals, but on the disclosure part. Yeah. What we see that's really interesting is when you have a regulatory framework come out like SFDR this year in Europe, what you immediately see from a data perspective is people are looking at the gaps between the framework and data availability. And then our role is to see where that data availability is and to take, say, an established framework and to see, right, we need some more data on waste, we need some more data on emissions, we need some more data on this. And what's really interesting about the data markets is when there's that demand, how there's the supply response. And that data is somewhere. And it starts a data monetization process that then people see, right, we now have 20, 30, 40, 50 entities looking for this data. We need to go get the data and get it distributed. So from that perspective, I'm very, very positive on the outlook from a data perspective as actually being able to get to better measurement and better transparency. Going back to the earlier point, when we talk about share price performance, what are people's thoughts on private equity and lending and cost of credit? Do we need to go into, into credit markets and into loan markets and into bank financing to incentivize change? Have people any perspectives on that? I think that, yes. So we need to, private equity and banks' loans to also be subject to the same disclosure requirements. Right now, what happens is if I have a firm that has a very dirty unit, it's a public firm that has a very dirty unit, what they tend to do is they sell it, like the example that John said, I sell it to the one that has the lowest ethical compass. And therefore, I made it private, and therefore, I don't have it. So now the CO2 emissions are not mine, and it's in hands of a private sector that doesn't disclose. And apparently, we have eliminated CO2, but we are actually polluting three times more. It's exactly with John's example or with the divesting. So, no, we have financial statements disclosed everywhere. I understand different standards, but everybody has to have a financial disclosure. We have financial standards and accounting standards, and they have to be checked. We need to have the same amount of disclosure here. I don't care who you are. You have to pay taxes. Well, here we have to pay like a CO2 tax or whatever, and then that will force a disclosure. Maybe that's a solution. Put a tiny tax, which is irrelevant from the economic point of view, but it's massive on the disclosure and the standardization. So then everybody is forced to file the same forms. I understand people will manipulate them. Those are the greenwashers with bad intentions. But then we can actually see the data. And no one, no one can actually decide not to. Also, the bond market is harder to make the loans intentional if it's not a project. But if it's a project then it's super easy to make it intentional. So I think the banks have a humongous opportunity here. Yeah. So I like the idea. I mean, you know, again, with what Tesco did with a, I think they got a billion revolving credit is that they attach it to a green issue. If, you know, we know that Greenbull's doing well, if more non-traditional finance companies, big, big companies are looking at revolving credit agreements and looking at borrowing 
under the base that, you know, we will attach that eventual payment to a green or social issue. I think that's attractive. But then also what that will do is two things. One, it will attract more attention to the idea of ESG from non-financial points of view. But second of all, the danger is that it will attract sort of the plight of more greenwashers who realise that they can actually probably, you know, create some sort of fake credit agreement and just get the money. So we've got to be very careful about that. But around the disclosure elements, you know, the primary growth of ESG data is increasingly coming out of Europe more so. And I think regulation is more so. I think regulations have doubled from 2015 to 2019 out of Europe. So Europe is the hub of ESG and its data. What we've got to look at and what I think is a really good solution, which just, you know, amplifies what you guys are saying, is that we need to have a massive onslaught of critical mass of data. Okay. And then we want that delivered in a format that we can all understand. So I think if we have a complete avalanche of data which is easily understandable and we can all manipulate, then I think we've got a greater chance of actually creating some sort of regularly understandable point of view. Yeah, I would agree. And John, sorry. Well, just exactly to give Ron's point there, in the format we can all understand. If you think about when we look at financial disclosure at the moment, we all know how to navigate an annual report or a 10K. We go into the report, we know where all the different parts of the accounts are, we understand how the notes are laid out. We go into a sustainability report and you can open up and you can find anything there. You can find 100 pages of pictures or you can find a regurgitation of what's in the annual report. So there's no standardization there and it makes our job incredibly difficult. I completely agree with Gibran there. The other thing, going back to your point, Neil, on funding for private equity and lending, I'll go back to the divestment point. There's a difference between divesting assets you currently have that are already in place and funding for new assets. So if you divest, you're selling assets off cheaply and the buyer comes in and picks them up at a very attractive return. But it's different if you're putting new CapEx in. And that's what we say to the companies we're invested in. We're not going to force you to divest. We're not, we don't want you to put new CapEx into the ground. Exactly. And we're saying the same thing to banks. And we're seeing banks move on that in the UK where they're going to cut down their lending to companies that are in the fossil fuel sector, our exposure to coal, etc., and that does raise the cost of funding because then the private equity won't be getting it cheap. They will have to pay the cost of the asset rather than the discount to the cost. Of course, the background to this is there's so much cheap liquidity around. With interest rates where they are, this is always a problem. If you didn't have so much capital, if interest rates weren't so low, then naturally everything or the, the, the return requirement would be higher. But I do think if investors differentiate there, not on, on forcing divestment, but on saying no new CapEx or wind down the funding for these assets. That's a much more impactful way. I would agree, John. I think we have to look at it very, very differently. And the other thought was to Gibran's point on data availability. When banks in the US lend to an individual or to a company, they share information with each other on the borrower to ensure that they reduce their risk of having a bad loan. Should we be doing the same in an ESG context to a standardized framework that we share information as investors, whether it's a public equity or a private equity? So keep on, if you do a lot of work this year in Urban Edge around diversity and inclusion, should that information be shared with other entities so that they have the benefit of better insight into those companies? Do you know, I'm going to say yes. And I'm going to say yes for 
for two reasons. One, because I believe that the idea of a fund is to one solve a problem and also to create a unique secret source that enables you to gain alpha, right? So if you're confident with your ability to gain alpha through your secret source via screens or whatever, then all your team, fantastic. But also the data that you'll get is raw. If you're getting raw ESG data that is available or it's out there, then I think it should be shared, especially when it comes to gender and ethnicity. I think if it's really hard elements that are out there that are hard to get, you know, I think really should share it because I think the more of that data is out there, the more people are aware, then they can actually make their own judgments. Especially if it's in a raw format that's easily understood, then you're able to take that data with you, model it, and actually make it and create it to what you want, right? You can shape it into the pastry or the cake that you want. Um, so, yeah, I think so. Because the scarcity will create falsity. That's what I think in this case. Any final thoughts, Roberta and John, on that point on information sharing and helping each other? I think it's interesting to ask the question, why banks share information? I think that they share information because they are the residual claimant if I default. So they're perfectly aligned to share information because if I default, then all of them get screwed. So they don't want one bank by overlending to screw the other. So I think that in some sense, they are yeah. defending themselves. Much if we create the same situation for, for CO2 or for discrimination, so imagine that there's a massive penalty that comes to you if you discriminate against a worker, but massive, I mean, that is so massive that it creates the possibility of a default, then the banks are going to share the information automatically. And this will be worldwide. I have not thought about it, but I think it's a brilliant comparison, Neil, there. I think also, but I think it's the motives, right? I think our motives are completely different than banks. I think for us, our motives within ESG is about the idea of making companies better and perform better. And by that, they have to take some sort of moral responsibility with that. So creating a company out of fear, which banks do, then most of their processes is to protect and from fear rather to grow and improve. I think, you know, if we look at things from a different perspective and go, right, we're going to improve the situation and put everybody on some sort of equal playing field where the data is all accessible. And, you know, unlike Formula One, which in the back all day, I thought Formula One, all the cars were even, but little did I know then that not all cars were even. But I think if you have data given to everybody and go, right, here's equal amount of data, it's all equal, what you do with it is what you do with it, then I think, you know, the best craftsman will win. But I think creating a business out of fear is not the way forward. Hmm. John, any thoughts in terms of data availability for UK institutions? Well, first to come back to your point with the SFDR, that's going to put a massive demand for funds that are selling into the European Union to go and get data. I think that the first thing is that in the next couple of years, you're going to see that demand driving the supply, as you said, Neil. So that's going to be huge. I think... In terms of sharing, what you do find is that fund managers and portfolio managers are much more open to sharing ideas and sharing thoughts and engaging with other shareholders on issues. So while there may not be a sharing of data, there's certainly a sharing of thoughts on companies and engaging together or collaborating together on trying to drive change within companies. And we see that through the Investor Forum, the Investment Association, these are, you know, there's lots of fora now that really do help that and just individually reaching out to other shareholders in the company. The data one is a little bit trickier in terms of right now, you know, it's something you need to buy in. How that works, I'm not quite sure. Yeah. So it can inform opinion and those opinions can be shared. So we still get the benefit as an investment community. Excellent. 
gentlemen, it's been really, really enjoyable conversation. I do believe we're all going to get to speak again in May <laughs> uh, because yeah. we have, on some of these points, we've got a data hackathon coming up. We're all going to get to speak together on a panel at our May conference. We could have easily have spoken further today. I know it's something that we all have very strong views on and we have a genuine interest in. And I really, really appreciate you taking the time and look forward to speaking further in future weeks. Thank you very much. Thanks, Neil. Thank Thanks, you. guys. Thank Thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's a wrap for this episode of Profiting from Data. Thank you for listening. This podcast series is brought to you by Eagle Alpha, the pioneer in alternative data. To learn about Eagle Alpha's solutions for data vendors and buyers, please visit eaglealpha.com.